0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So, in the epistle reading today, um, it picked up right from where we left off last Sunday in the epistle reading. and This is what we heard last week. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. is at work in you. If you were reading uh, Corinthians, there's a lot of it that would feel like a real downer. There is suffering filling Paul's life at almost every turn. Paul's life seemed to be a long suffering. During his earliest days as a zealot, he caused immense suffering. Hounding, torturing that fledgling, fledgling, renegade Jesus community that exploded as witnesses to the resurrection. But then Jesus met Paul on a road to Damascus, and he blinded him. And Paul was radically transformed. The one who was killing Christians now became a primary leader among that same community. The one who was causing the suffering now became a sufferer. And Paul suffered. And he suffered. And then he suffered some more. It seems that Paul contracted at some point some chronic illness that was a source of constant pain. Some of you know what that's like. Some of us here are dealing with constant chronic pain. Paul was cast out of the very places that he had been a leader. He was cast away from the very friends that he had known as intimate, intimate acquaintances, companions, companions. Paul was shipwrecked. He was abandoned by his support system and his friends. He was tortured by jailkeepers. He was left to rot in lice infested cells. And then this morning, Paul describes more of his suffering. And if, then if you move forward into chapter 11, this is what you'd hear. I was frequently tossed in prison, flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. 5 times I received the 40 lashes minus 1. 3 times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, 3 times I was shipwrecked. I mean, good mercy. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in dangers from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Now, some folks Uh, don't like Paul very much, and they think that he's testy or sharp. I get that. I don't always follow that opinion, but I also want to say, I mean, give the guy a break. I mean, geesh. But in these exact same pages, in this same letter, Paul offers what I think is some of the most beautiful wrenching, heart-lightening words of hope. We heard them read to us this morning. Since we have the same spirit of faith that our forebears had when they said, and then he quotes from a psalm, Psalm 116, we have the same faith that they had when they said, and so when he quotes this psalm, he's, he's offering this psalm as a prayer. By quoting this line, he is referring to the entire psalm that his people would have, have known from their childhood, of Psalm one sixteen. The one little tiny line that's tucked away is this is this line that says, "I believed and so I spoke." So he says, "Since we have the same spirit of faith that our forebears had when they prayed, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe." And so we also speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into God's presence. Because the one who raised Jesus from the dead is still active in the world with this same resurrection power and life, Because the story of God across history is that God will never lose God's people. Because God's intention is always to rescue. Because this is the larger story that we're living in, Paul says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. I uh, I think that some of us here really need to hear this word: that God is active in our world. God is active in this community. God is active in your story in such a way that you need not to lose heart. If there's one thing, and there's not, there's lots of things, but if there was one thing that I hope I could do as a pastor, it's to be a voice that would come alongside you and say, do not lose heart. Whenever Paul was... uh, Referring to this this psalm, Psalm 116. This This is the psalm that he was evoking. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. Do you ever feel like the cords of death entangle you? The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple hearted. When I was in great need, God saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is the beauty of being immersed in the language and the story and the rhythms of Scripture. Is that in these great places of sorrow, we are returned again and again to the story of God that has been written across time, across millennia, across geography, across every kind of barrier that we know in the human reality, that God has been writing a larger story? It's why we pray prayers again and again and over and over, it's that these prayers become a language. It's why we read the scriptures over and over because it becomes a wide view. Even when they're perplexing, even when we don't understand, even when it seems uh, intimidating, that it becomes a language for our imagination and a world that we exist in. So this is what Paul said to us this morning. Because he was living in the imagination of God. So we do not lose heart even though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction. (laughs) You read all the things, right? This slight momentary affliction. And if you read Paul, it it doesn't seem like he's saying this in the way of... um, Oh, everything's great, you know, God is good, God's on the throne, no worries here. It doesn't seem like it's, he's dismissing it. It's because there is a larger story that has captured his imagination so that in comparison, even his very real troubles and travails do not own the day. So for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary. For what cannot be seen is eternal. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Because even if the body is wasting away, and it is. Even if we are under great duress, even the suffering, even when it strips us of all beauty, or mars our vision, or seems to cut us completely to the bone, God is doing something within that suffering. God is constantly, even in our perilous and disorienting places, God is constantly renewing, transforming, doing something in our deepest being. There's no sense in which we should understand Paul as dismissing the goodness of the body. He's not saying, oh, it's wasting away, so never mind. But what he's saying is this reality that we grapple with is that things are wasting away but God's renewing work is still active. We know that God's best work happens whenever death is circling like a vulture. The story of Jesus tells us that it's precisely in that place of death. It's precisely in that place when the story seems to cataclysmically be done when every doubt and every fear seems to own the moment it is precisely in that place that God's power rises in its most potent way recently um, I returned again to one of my own places of internal panic I'm assuming that most of you know these places Um, the kind of things that no matter how old you get no matter how many times you sort of Think you've learned better, grown up, whatever, how quickly we return to these voices, to these places of fear. Well, I was returning to one of those places not too long ago. It wasn't a lot of fun. And I began to feel myself do what I normally do, which is scramble around, kind of internally get chaotic, get very frantic, feel trapped like I don't know the way out, don't know the answer, don't know what to do, feel a lot of shame because here we go again, you think I know better. I don't know if this will mean anything to you, but there was a moment where something, um, and I believe it was the Spirit of God, pressed into my heart, and the sense I had was, this is actually really good for me. (laughs) It is good for me to walk through these places rather than somehow be given a magic pill and be allowed to avoid them. But there is something that my heart needs to learn. There is something about my trust in Jesus that needs to be transformed, and it's only going to happen, I sense, you know, dadgummit. It's only going to happen by walking right into the middle of that panic and chaos. And yet, if you're like me, we can spend inordinate amounts of energy trying <laughs> to avoid and walk around that chaos. So sometimes God carries us through suffering rather than making it disappear because God knows that the way to real life often means we have to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Few of us, it seems, surrender to transformation without feeling our pain enough to want that transformation. Letting go of our self-sufficiency and our illusions is itself a painful thing. And God loves us too much to spare us that necessary but painful mercy. This is an act of love. Some of you have read uh, poet Khalil Gibran. He has this uh, little piece called On Love and it's it's from his uh, poetry book, The Prophet, where he basically has this wise person speaking words, and it's, it's spoken through poetry. Then said Al-Mitra, speak to us of love. And he raised his head and looked upon the people, and there fell a stillness upon them, and with a great voice he said, when love beckons to you, follow him though his ways are hard and steep. And when his wings enfold you, yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you. And when he speaks to you, believe in him, though his voice may shatter your dreams as the north wind lays waste the garden. For even as love crowns you, so shall he crucify you. Even as he is for your growth, so is he for your pruning. Even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. Like sheaves of corn, he gathers you unto himself. He threshes you to make you naked. He sifts you, to free you from your husks. He grinds you to whiteness. He kneads you until you're a pliant. And then he assigns you to his sacred fire, that you may become sacred bread for God's sacred feast. Um, I think I've shared this story with you. I'm not sure if I have, but several years ago, when my mom was... um, in her last month's dying of cancer, um, I became aware of, of how something was transforming between my mom and I. You know, suffering has a way of um, maybe making us more frantic. It has a way of moving us to avoidance But those seem like very surface responses but suffering has a way of taking us into something deeper opening up new possibilities so i love my mom dearly uh she loved me i think she loved me uh, well but my mom was always emotionally it seemed kind of closed off like um she felt really committed to um, being good for other people and protecting space for other people. And I'm not sure as I got older and I realized the way the world actually works and how hard life actually is and saw some of her own burdens, I I never felt like I really saw um, who she really was behind some of this posturing of being good, making life good for other people. Well, you know, when you're dying of bone cancer, um, it's really hard to hold that together. <laughs> and um, for the first couple years of, of her dying, uh, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't talk about it, really. She didn't want to talk about it on the phone. We were there. She didn't want to talk about it. And it was hard on me, honestly, because it was very difficult to, to grieve with her uh, if she wouldn't let us talk about it. But at the same time, you can't tell another person how to die of cancer. <laughs> and so um, I just tried to be present with her. and um, the last time I saw her, though, she was pretty much uh, bedbound, and her hair was gone, and she would have a pink um, you know pink scarf on her head, and she loved um, colorful um, robes. In pajamas, and so she always had something really flashy and colorful. But she was in bed, and I think it was my last night in Waco with her. And I was in her room, and it was really hard to even have very much of an extended conversation with her. But I was just in there with her, and I was holding her hand, and she looked up at me and she said, "When I don't want to die." And I felt like it was the first time that she had really um, she had really offered the gift of her sorrow. And I feel like it allowed me, I mean, it was hard to hear. I mean, no son wants to hear your mom say, I don't want to die, when you know that she's dying. But she offered that gift of her suffering. And I was probably, I guess I was 43 at the time. And as a 43-year-old boy, again, for the first time probably since I was 10 years old, I don't know, I climbed into that bed with her. And I held my mom. I don't know if I had ever really held my mom. My mom had held me, um, but she wasn't the sort of person who was going to be held. (laughs) But in that moment with the awareness of her death, with perhaps her simple inability to resist it any longer, perhaps with a kind of deepening that she wasn't fighting against things anymore. She was stepping into the reality of what was. There was something that transformed between the two of us. And at least as far as an adult, my mom was a a massive gift giver. That was part of her persona. She loved to give gifts, and it actually got ridiculous. Um, She would stay up. um, She was a pastor's wife, and she would stay up all night before Christmas, like a couple days before Christmas, literally uh, wrapping a couple hundred gifts to give to basically everybody in the church, everybody in the school where she worked. I mean, it was just kind of an obsession. And she would give gifts to us, and there's lots of gifts. I think maybe one of the greatest gifts she ever gave me It was her her willingness to offer me her suffering. And it's that kind of strangeness in the way of the gospel that our suffering need not destroy us. It certainly doesn't mean that we ignore it or do what some of us do, which is sort of play the happy Christian game and, you know, put some kind of... uh, spin on it. It's we acknowledge its destruction. And then we open our heart and our mind and our life to feel the weight of that. And then to open ourselves to the God who suffered for us and with us in Jesus. And we really don't have time to do this anymore, um, but that's precisely the why we have the crazy part of the readings this morning the crazy crazy that's it's mark when jesus is in the middle of his ministry and his his family comes and grabs him and pulls him away and says he's lost his mind he's lost his mind and then there's these these words that could we could take a whole sermon talking about them if not more but just these perplexing words about the sin against the Holy Spirit and how it's the one thing that can't be forgiven. And I just want to say, some of us who hear these words, um, if you're afraid of that sin, you haven't committed it. Um, And I really think what Jesus is talking about here is the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals us God's invitation. And I think what Jesus is saying is, Yeah, the only thing that can't be forgiven is the thing we'll refuse to be forgiven for. The only thing that that can't be forgiven is our refusal to allow God to bring all of the mystery and wonder of God into our lives. In other words, I think what Jesus is talking about is another way of losing heart. I think when we close ourselves off and we say, I don't want any of that, I'm going to resist that with every bit of my fiber, we are actually losing heart to the kindness and the grace that's so ready to be poured out to us. And so I want to challenge all of us to let our suffering deepen us in God. Deepen us in our life with one another. Deepen us in the mystery of what God is doing because God is actively present in the very midst of our suffering. Let's pray together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you.